Welcome to another episode of Safety at Work Talks podcast. My name is Kevin Jones. This month, November 2017, Professor Sidney Decker released a book called The Safety Anarchist uh, with a subtitle, Relying on Human Expertise and Innovation, Reducing Bureaucracy and Compliance. Now, I wouldn't bother about the subtitle, <clears throat> but the book was very, very interesting um, and uh, typical of Sydney covers a, uh, a, a great many variety of, um, of topics that are particularly relevant to safety professionals, but also to anyone who has to manage safety in workplaces. Um, in this episode, we spoke about issues of governance, risk assessment, the safety profession, bureaucracy centralization, and also the cost of compliance, all issues that are touched upon in the book. The conversation goes for around 45 minutes, and uh, it was quite a lively discussion, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Sydney, uh, you've produced another book um, to do with uh, safety Hmm. in the broadest sense, but this title, The Safety Anarchist, are you bringing down the foundations of the safety profession? And what 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 does this mean? What can we expect? Because uh, right, I'm, I'm scared, Sydney. <laughs> I mean, we're in a small room here. Um, can you move away the sharp objects? Um, so, safety anarchist. That's that's your book. That's that's uh, yeah. So the I don't even know what the subtitle is anymore. But it's uh, do you have it there? No, no. Um, so well, we can find this out very soon. The subtitle is stand by. The subtitle is relying on human expertise and innovation. Reducing bureaucracy and compliance, and that's very that's polite. The, I think the the cover image of your <laughs> of your book has something else on the cover image. Uh, I think it's a, a yellow safety sign that says "Nobody to get harmed." And uh, nobody gets hurt today! Exclamation and, mark. And then somebody's graffitied over it. Don't tell me what to do. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's a real. You well, know, that's the anarchist claim, right? Yeah. You don't you don't want an authority to tell you what to do, and if the authority tells you to not get hurt, you tell them, "Don't tell me what to do." Right. So that would be. I think that that image, uh, masterfully and is very well designed, <laughs> oh. uh, encapsulates the anarchist message. Okay. But, so so the the book the, the book doesn't have anarchy in it. It's not proposing anarchy. What's what's this context? So so there's a there's a very critical difference between anarchy and anarchism, obviously, and so the conflation of those two terms has probably given anarchism uh, a bad press. But anarchy is a state of affairs, and it's it's in some sense a state of affairs that most people wouldn't want. It's a state of disorder, societal disorder, right? And it results, of course, from the absence of or non recognition of any type of. Uh, of authority or any agreements or, or perhaps even any mores. It can be a state of total chaos and, 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 and disruption and, and pain and suffering and, um, and a collapse of law and order. Mm-hmm. And Now, what's interesting is that, so that's anarchy. It's a state of affairs. Yeah. Anarchism is a set of ideas and ideals, um, as in we would, this is what we would like society to be and, and this is how we would get there, right? So ideas and ideals. Um, Anarchism as an ideology, that is, as a set of ideals and ideas, represents his belief that we can probably have a society that is more harmonious, that is more collaborative, that is more fruitful, more innovative, if we don't have central authority telling us uh, what to do. And there's a lot of historical evidence for this. But before I even go into any of that, um, uh, if at all, um, I think it is important to remember that a state of anarchy never follows an embrace of anarchism as an ideology. It's mm-hmm. the opposite. 
when do you see anarchy emerge historically? Anarchy emerges as a result of immensely centrally controlled repressive regimes. That's when you get anarchy. And it's happening right now, right? Venezuela is on the brink of, of doing it, right? And so um, that's when you get anarchy, when there is an increased repression and centralized control. So it's actually the opposite, right? Not anarchism doesn't lead to anarchy. Central control ultimately can lead to anarchy. Okay. So one of the, sub, one of the words that jumped out at me in the subtitle uh, was uh, bureaucratization or bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah. So um, when safety people hear bureaucratization, um, we read red tape, um, unnecessary um, documentation, mm. red tape. So is anarchism, what you're talking about in anarchism, is this building on that, which we've got at the moment, a current movement against bureaucratization and in safety, I'm thinking London, the response to Grenfell Fire and, mm. and other things. Mm. So... Um, the topicality of your of your book may be very high, really yeah, high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So discuss this the yeah, bureaucratization. It's I don't think it's just building on. It's actually providing a much more uh, considered intellectual basis for it, um, which I don't think many people in the field do, right, or have the time to do. And so I, I still see that very much as my role, right, to supply not only some of the ideas but to supply the intellectual um, basis for those ideas. Um, and in this case, you're absolutely right. When you when you look currently um, in Australia alone, um, this this economy is spending 250 billion dollars per year to cover the cost of compliance. Right? Um, the compliance industry, including safety, about a third is safety. Right, the rest mm-hmm. is, is is corporate risk and reputational risk, financial risk. Yeah. Um, but safety is accountable for about a third of that. Um, uh, the cost of compliance translates to Eight weeks per year, you and I and every other working man and woman in this country is working to just cover the costs of compliance. Eight weeks out of your year. Only then can you start being productive right, and doing something. Other, you know, you're just covering the cost of compliance. It's about a tenth of the, of the gross domestic product. It's huge. Um, what that means, I mean, it's larger than the trade with China. Right? It's probably even larger than the healthcare system. I mean, it's unbelievable the amount of money we spend on compliance. There are so many cooks in the kitchen. This, the governments at various levels in this country, and you've got many levels, right, uh, more than most other places yeah. I've lived in the world, um, um, don't even know how many rules there are. They stop counting, um, right? They don't even necessarily know what authorities are responsible for living up to which rules. And then what's even more interesting about it is that about 60% of this cost of compliance is internally driven. That is, organizations themselves have set these compliance demands. Only 40% of it is government-driven. Mm. So you've got one Australian in 10 watching what the other nine are doing. I mean, that's essentially the... Right. Well, I'm kind of thinking with the with the eight weeks estimation you've got there, and then a lot of people get four weeks annual leave. There's 12 out of 52 that's Yeah, throw in a couple, couple of public holidays, and, which yeah. you have every week here. You yeah, know, and so, yeah, yeah, they're good. They're good. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, so, um, but it makes but, life pretty expensive, right? So one of the things that, that you're saying, though, is a response to this situation is you're talking about anarchism as a, as a purpose of ch- a way of change. Well, as an ideological uh, inspiration for yeah. such change, yeah. yeah. What you're proposing, though, could be seen by some, particularly in the safety profession, as heresy. So why isn't this the safety heretic? Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. 
Um, that's a very good question. Heresy is typically associated with having a, a very forceful ideological counter idea to the idea which you protest against and for which you can be burned at the stake. Right. Um, and so uh, heresy is, is, is not believing what is orthodox, what is dogma. Um, now, that is true. But very often, uh, heresy works um, best if you have an opposing dogma. If you have, um, um, for example, no, we do not believe that Mary is a holy mother. For example, yeah, so mm-hmm. we do not believe, and so we should be, um, we should be um, uh, getting rid of statutes in our churches for that, right? Because we have a very strong belief that it, that it is this and not mm-hmm. this. Anarchism doesn't do that. Anarchism, by very definition, doesn't want to commit to any particular idea of how the world should be ruled anyway. Other than that, we should eschew, or at least be very careful of, uh, having a central authority hierarchically imposing its rule upon those who actually do the work. Um, And so it leaves much more more openness for ideas and innovation and collaboration from the ground up, Um, like we've seen in some of the experiments that we've talked about in another Mm. podcast. so this is a, <clears throat> a questioning of authority, about the, the role of authority, the application of authority. In Australia <clears throat> and in many Western countries, the health and safety laws say that the primary responsibility sits on the employer mm. for health and safety. So how could what you're talking about with the anarchism, how can that work how can that be sold or be made attractive to an employer who has the primary responsibility on health and safety in the workplace? All of this is, of course, very much embedded and deeply interconnected to systems of compensation, accountability, liability, uh, and ultimately who pays for what when things go wrong, right? Uh, workers' comp, all of that. And so um, so one practical answer and, and, and then I think one more, uh, more philosophical one. Um, the practical one is that Australia hasn't made its own life easier by making it so. Um, and, and of course, the employer, um, if you make someone do your dirty work, uh, absolutely, you should, you should probably, you know, in all kinds of moral ways of constructing the problem, the right thing to do is to make the employer uh, responsible for consequences when things go wrong. Mm. However, the response to that has been a vast system of compliance and bureaucracy that does nothing to make people's life easier, safer, more efficient, more productive, more operationally relevant. Instead, we are making people, workers who do the dangerous and dirty work, do lots of things that don't help them at all, that only cover the backs of the people they work for. Right? And that gets done in ways that are, in fact, deeply immoral. Right? You've signed the checklist, you've signed this contract, meaning that you have taken, you know, you know all the risks, which means if, if something screws up, don't come knocking on my door because you have, you have yep. signed essentially all rights to that away. Um, and that's what we're doing. And, and I think that is, in fact, deeply immoral and ultimately deeply counterproductive. And it doesn't lead to a very engaged uh, workforce that, that is willing to bear the responsibility for good outcomes. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and so... But that is a, as, a, as a practical answer, uh, if it is one. Um, the philosophical one is, I don't think um, there is ever an excuse for um, uh, not going out to extreme positions to just see the possibilities that we might move toward ever. 
right? And so, I and I see that very much as as my role and my responsibility. Um, I don't expect people, um, and I don't want people to believe a word I'm saying in this book or any other book or any podcast. Don't believe a word you hear. Yeah, we don't. No, you got to check these things out for yourself yeah. and understand how you have a brain just like mm-hmm. I do, right? And so it's your your responsibility to see to what extent these things might work or not work. But what I won't accept is sort of this intellectual complacency or laziness and say, oh no, no, we've you know we uh, OHNS for us is uh, is everything uh, you know since the harmonization in 2011, and that's what we've learned and that's what we do, right? And so it's this this incurious, superficial, technical, steely emptiness of the OHNS professional that I, that I find objectionable, um, right? And, and that's perhaps strong language, but I really do. So it's my role to say, listen, there's all these ideas. You are not the first to struggle with these different systems of governance, right? Do we centralize? Do we decentralize? Do we devolve? Is, is Scotland going to be part of the United Kingdom? I mean, or is it going to devolve? I mean, so we've struggled with this in all yeah. kinds of ways. Yeah. So it's not just saying, oh, anarchism is the right way to do this. No, no, no. Anarchism is one of the sets of ideas and ideals to deal with this this push-pull. Should we centralize? Should we not centralize? Should we have hierarchy? Should we have uh, flat structures? Right? Okay. <clears throat> Recently, um, uh, David Proven. Yeah, uh, one of our students. A, said it. Uh, so this is a hotbed of anarchism, I can see. Well, I don't know whether. It said that uh, the safety profession is discretionary in terms of the, there hasn't been a, a strong case made that safety professionals improve safety. Mm. Okay, mm. so so what we've... Uh, is the safety profession in Australia, I mean, is this the latest... Is it a punching bag? Because I think it's going to feel like it's, it's being attacked or criticised from t- various areas in a way that it's never been before. Um, Interesting. Interesting. It may well be. It may well be. And and uh, that may be seen as unfair and um, uh, uncalled for, though I would leave that judgment uh, to those who do the punching. Um, I I have no doubt about the um, the genuineness of the motives of most safety professionals and, and why they do what they do. Yeah. Um, I, at the same time, have no doubt that they are seen by many of their co-workers as being the fun police, as mm-hmm. getting in the way of getting work done, as throwing extra and unnecessary obstacles before defeat if people actually get work done. And, and the upholders and producers of policies. And the upholders Rather and producers than, of policies. Yeah. And so there's one example in the book, right, in The Safety Anarchist, of a risk assessment that was done by um, a, uh, an oil company, uh, by the safety people of an oil company on a refinery. This is downstream. And so, and I'm going, okay, risk assessment, refinery, yeah, after Texas City and blowing stuff up, you know, in the ISOM, I'm going, that, that's probably not a bad idea of a risk assessment, right? Yeah. And so I thought that was entirely consistent until I started reading the thing. It was a risk assessment of whether in the break room, um, which is in the sort of, you know, um, uh, uh, demountable containers, uh, office containers, mm-hmm. that, that many refineries have, they're easily movable and they're, they're, they blow, blow away easily yep. in an explosion, by the way, yeah, create lots of debris, yeah. like Texas City, yeah. by the way. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so it was in these demountables. And, and so lots of risks. No, but the risk assessment was whether tea bags in the break room should be individually wrapped <laughs> or could just be sitting open in a box. All right, and uh, 18 pages or something, right? 
Um, and, and what's fascinating again the, 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 the profound ahistoricity of these of these uh, of the safety professionals engaged in these sorts of things I mean apart from the fact that that I would start asking rather deep existential questions about the meaning of life when I go home and I go oh yeah, I don't know a risk assessment today. yeah but no, I don't yeah. want to necessarily impugn that but because people may feel very satisfied doing that work but um, but have they never heard of Louis Pasteur? Mm-hmm. Right? The fact that if you dunk something in, in water that's just boiled, it doesn't matter whether it was in a bag or not. It's dead, yeah. right? And so um, when I, when I under, begin to understand that that's what the safety profession does, then I don't think that critics like me can be held accountable or responsible for the reputation that, that they have. Let me uh, – these uh, we're into questions without notice here. Sydney, but let me ask you, it seems to me that the safety profession, and we'll talk about Australia specifically, doesn't seem to have developed its own identity and as a result can be uh, swayed by other other issues, by insurance or by legal opinion or or other elements. It doesn't doesn't seem to, I, I would have thought a, a strongly identified safety profession would have some some strength some oh, I was going to say backbone that's unfair but a strong core that it could say no this is what we do mm. and as a result you're asking us to do something that is superfluous and irrelevant and is purposeless no it's, it's neither superfluous or redundant or purposeless nor purposeless. I think the the issue rather is so I don't know whether a, a stronger identity is at all possible. Mm. Um, I so here's here's the issue. So yesterday I was chatting to a um, to a safety uh, professional who'd been in the business since 1992, um, and um, and he said, uh, you know, my first job I. Um, uh, I was told uh, that uh, okay, so this is the triffer, and you're responsible for triffer. And 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 he looked at whoever his uh, his bosses were, and he's going, how can I be responsible for 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 triffer? Because I don't create triffer, right? That, mm. that happens, right? These are acts of God. No, they're not. <laughs> yeah. But right there, that's and so fundamental to the safety profession is this authority responsibility double bind. You are responsible for figures and numbers and outcomes that you have no authority over because you have no operational authority if you're not an operational line manager, right? And this is, so this, again, is this push-pull that we've talked about in other mm. contexts as well, which is, is safety an operational problem? Many would say, yes, it is. Well, in that case, that has significant consequences for the role and responsibilities of the safety professional. But you cannot make people responsible for a number that they cannot influence other than making things go away by sheer manipulation, which is exactly what we're seeing, right? No, mm. we call it clever case management, right? Yeah. So, no, this is not an injury or not a medical treatment. We'll call this, we'll just stick some tape over it, right? And this is how we manipulate and make those numbers away and try to get control over that which we ultimately have no control over. And so I think it is fundamentally unfair to expect a profession to develop a professional pride and a professional identity and a, and a strength and that power that you were talking about when we um, expect them to control things that really are not in their control at all. So to to expand on <clears throat> Dave's aphorism um, about um, safety uh, professionals being discretionary, do you see the future of the safety profession um, being embedded in uh, other areas of operations of a company 
rather than a safety unit, a safety profession itself? Is it one of these floating amorphous things that affect and can benefit other areas of a business, mm. but doesn't necessarily have a structure of its own? So that's that's almost like then an anarchism model of how to, <laughs> how to have a safety profession. Uh, yeah, easy um, to draw though. No, I like fluffy that. clouds. No, yeah. I like this a lot. Well, but why would we need to draw it? Um, yeah. The uh, I think that's a wonderful model. So um, in uh, in October, I'll I'll, uh, I'll speak in uh, uh, in Perth, or I may have already spoken in Perth when this airs. Um, uh, on exactly, I mean, the title of the keynote was given to me. It was like the future of the safety profession or safety professional. Um, and so this yeah. would definitely can I, can I jump in on that because yeah, that was ahead. that's that's the same uh, title that Dave Proven uh, was talking to. Oh, so he's already, he's already given the answer. <laughs> well, but it's also the title of one of the safety professions' latest magazines. is It's got a picture of a woman with the future of the OHS uh-huh. profession. So if this question keeps getting asked. There's, there's a, a there's, a, there's identity, an, identity there's a secu- insecurity <laughs> yeah. in the OHS profession, and, I, and I, it doesn't sound to me like you're going to be helping that insecurity. No, but these well, that's that's a bit prejudicial. Um, the uh, <laughs> I think the, um, the 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 anxieties like these can be helped, and insecurities can be helped by laying out different models, all of which have different repertoires of consequences and post conditions, and and for who you will be, what your beliefs are, and how you're going to be believed and listened to. And I think that should be uh, that should be the role of of anybody who talks about the future of any profession mm. um, is to say there's I don't I don't know which which model is going to be or which route is going to be taken, but these are different routes now. The one that you sketched, there are there are um, previous instantiations of that which have been quite successful, where you have safety uh, professionals attached quite closely to key decision, key operational decision makers mm-hmm. um, in inside organizations. The um, tension that always shows up in positions like that is and the problem is not that they're not part of a central safety organization or resorting under HR or whatever. I mean that's not the point. The, the tension that always arises in this is that they have to be outsider and insider at the same time, right? They have to be insider in the sense of understanding the, 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 the messy details of what, it, what that operations is and what makes it tick and how it actually gets work done without hurting anyone, uh, whether it's you know, launching rockets or, um, or, uh, or, or running a, a grocery store. Mm. Um, so they have to be on the inside. They have to be an insider. But they have to be an outsider to have this sort of this idea of the second opinion, right, mm. and the... Uh, um, the the court clown, right, with the little bells on the hat going, you know, the king is crazy, the emperor is not wearing any clothes, right? They have to be able to say that. But in order to do that, you've got to be sufficiently an outsider to do so, right? And there's very few people who can meaningfully, I think, address that role uh, and, and the dual nature of that role. Um, but that's what would be the requirement if you start distributing it like that. Hmm. You've published probably a dozen books, um, with predominantly a, a safety risk theme mm. to them. Um, does this follow, um, uh, you know, in the, the episodic library of Sydney Decker, or is it a diversion? Is it a right angle? Um, how does this relate to your library of work? Okay, nice, nice. That's an interesting question, and it's... Uh, I've been working on it all day. That's beautiful. It's a a very visual question. It's about pathways and Mm. and, and it's angles and perhaps very male to ask it. That's (laughs) unfair. That's very sexist. Sorry. I don't mind Um, being male. 
uh, no, no, but for me to depict that as male is very sexist, and so I shouldn't. Um, um, yep. Yeah, so, stop, yeah, yeah. edit. Thank you. Keep going. Yeah. That's a very interesting question, and, and it's a very visual question somehow. I think the, um, uh, the answer relative to the safety anarchist is as follows. Um, I believe that we have certainly over the past 20 years, when we have over the past 20 years in this country and others, uh, more than doubled the, uh, the amount of safety bureaucracy as measured by the positions, the, uh, the statutes, the laws, the regulations, but also the internal compliance requirements. Mm. And when you start counting that, it's easily doubled, uh, if not um, uh, multiplied by a, by a greater factor. Um, uh, yet we have not made much progress. Um, uh, plateaued on many of the indicators mm -hmm. and in many fields we keep killing the same number of people um, yeah. year on year. Um, that's true for construction, true for oil and gas, true for aviation even, right? So essentially, I mean, despite some dips and, and sure. troughs and peaks, essentially the same number of fatalities and, and life-changing injuries in these, in these industries. If that's the case, yet we keep throwing ever greater bureaucracy at it and it's, the problem is not going to go away, then that would present what the Greeks would call an aporia, the end of the conversation. There's no more dialogue. We're done, right? We mm. can keep chasing down this rabbit hole, but you know, back to Einstein, it would be idiocy to assume that we can get different results by doing more of the same, mm. right? And by being ever more vociferous and shrill about this and ever more bureaucratic. Uh, and lots of people are recognizing this, right? Doing more of the same is going to get us more of the same. That is, the same flat numbers on injuries and, lo and low, low consequence stuff and the same numbers on, on high consequence stuff. Um, if that's the case, if that's the aporia, then in some sense, yes, the book represents a, a dead end. Boom. That's, but then it provides the 90 degree out or the, mm -hmm. the, the circumvention, circumventing that, that, that aporia, that dead end, um, by suggesting a different system of governance. And it really boils down to, to challenging something that we have accrued in the West for at least 100 years or more. And that is that we have believed that we can deal with most societal ills, including safety and health, by centralizing, by standardizing, and by massive surveillance, right, these three. Right. And so centralize the, the response to the problem um, and the control of the problem. Um, uh, standardize the responses to it so that everybody gets the same treatment. Um, and make sure that through massive surveillance, um, you can check what's going on and what the results are. Right? And that's exactly what we're doing. As I've suggested early on in the conversation, that is just one governance response. Right? There's always been mm -hmm. this push-pull between the, the Apollonian and the Dionysian model, to speak with Nietzsche, right? that there's these um, Dionysos versus uh, Apollo, right? and Apollo order and hierarchy and mm -hmm. centralization and control, and Dionysos, oh. from which my name derives, actually. Right? <laughs> okay. uh, Sydney means Saint-Denis, which really means the holy Dionysos. Okay. Yep. Uh, so drinking, cavorting. Cavorting, um, court yep. order, di yep. sort of disorder, yep. uh, uh, flat, flat structure, mm -hmm. uh, joy, um, initiative, innovation. I mean, that's, that's all Dionysos, right, rather than Apollo. You do make him sound so, lots of fun. I, and I think the Greeks wanted him to look like lots of fun. Mm. And so, um, but from my reading of, of Greek and uh, classical literature, just to blow my own trumpet, is that he wasn't unresponsible. If that's the, the it, yeah, irresponsible, irresponsible. Thank you very much. He he still had a role to play, and he still had duties in the higher in the hierarchy of the very of, much, of the very God much. If, if anything, to keep the others honest. Yeah, and, right? uh, yeah, like like court clowns do. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah and yeah. Uh, so I mean, he was often the most perceptive 
perceptive, really cool. incisive, an yeah. incisive mindset, an incisive perception. You, you say that very nicely. Yeah. And otherwise, you know, the, the French and others wouldn't have declared him holy, right? Saint-Denis, mm. right? There's a whole town, which, of course, also, I mean, if you look at the history, I mean, the, the Sydney, the, the city in this country mm. is ultimately named after mm. uh, when you do the genealogy. But the, um, so, um, uh, but, but this push-pull uh, between these different forms of, of governance, right? And it's, it's, it sounds a bit binary, but you know, this is how we structure systems mm. and of thought very, very often. Um, I think, to me, speaks volumes that if we are down the rabbit hole of more centralization, more standardization, and more massive surveillance as our answers to these ills, um, it, is, it is on any, any public intellectual, on any thinker, to show that there is a whole history of an alternative, and this is how it looks, mm-hmm. right? And you can call it heresy. And, and again, I, there was reasons why I didn't and sure. wouldn't want to. You call it anarchism, you could call it Dionysism, or whatever <laughs> we might want to call it, um, or decentralization, or devolution. Or, right? but, but, I mean, those only cover a part of, of, yeah. of, of what that stands for. Um, but I think it is incumbent on all of us that if we collectively, as a community, as a safety community, are running into the wall of the limits of their, our own model, that we look to the sides for alternatives, and this book is one of them. I'm trying to picture a, a sector in the community that is um, that is a, a safety anarchist. Um, it seems to me that a lot of the elements of what you're talking about with safety anarchism um, seems to fit what farmers do in terms of their self-reliance, their autonomy, their isolation causing them to to attend to their own safety. Um, is, that, is that a fair description? And um, how can they improve their safety by thinking in an anarchism way? Because they already are, is what you're suggesting. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're living the dream of anarchism, yeah. and yet they're maiming and hurting and, and killing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, fair. That's a very good question. So the science on this is... Uh, is very clear, and that is that there is a there is a sweet spot when it comes to safety and and rules and standardization and centralized control over it. Um, and um, in in many industries, we have, uh, and that's probably treating those industries too too monolithically, right? Because mm-hmm. there's lots of variations and, and distinction and nuance sure. inside of them. Yeah. Um, but the um, uh, in many industries, we've probably gone way beyond that sweet spot, and we keep making rules and adding rules, even though there's absolutely no demonstrable advantage to doing that anymore, mm. right? Uh, no more safety, uh, even though we add more rules, and that, that's obvious in commercial aviation, for example, and, and, and some other rather mature industries. Now, farming, very, very, very old profession, obviously, mm. um, it probably sits somewhere else in that, and and um, so the, the the science again on this comes from uh, from René Almoberti, a safety scientist in in France, um, who suggested that you know systems where you maim or ser- kill or seriously hurt someone every every one in a thousand, you know, so it's a, you slash this thing thousand times, and one in a thousand or more you kill, hurt, maim. Um, that's that's unsafe. Um, then you have systems that do that every once in a hundred thousand, right, ten to the minus five, and so mm. they're pretty safe systems. Then you got ultra safe systems that hurt, maim, kill, like like uh, airline aviation in in uh, in uh, most parts of the world, uh, which do ten to the minus six, ten to the minus seven, right, one in a million or one in ten million. And so um, now, it, the so back to the sweet spot of the mm. rules. 
when you look at a very unsafe system, and, and so farming could be like mountain climbing or bungee jumping, or where, where most of the safety provisions are up to the individual and up to uh, your autonomy to decide, do I need this, do I not need this? Yeah. Um, where lessons from others aren't learned to broadcast, right? If you've got a bungee jumping accident somewhere in the world, you know, now through the internet you might, but otherwise you wouldn't have heard of it, right? And yeah. So lessons do not get shared. There is not well, this. Well, it doesn't get shared outside of that discipline that, of this, the, the Exactly, sport. or country yeah. or community, yep. or exactly. Um, and you could probably, now I haven't done the, the research on this, but you mm. could probably make the argument that farming sits somewhere there, mm. right? And that if you want to make progress on safety in a community like that, that's some forms of standardization and that's some forms of broadcasting lessons outside the immediate community in which those lessons were learned um, has significant benefits, right? So some level of Apollo, some level of <laughs> yeah. standardization and centralized control mm. uh, over these sorts of things may actually help. Now, that doesn't mean that we need in place a system of hierarchical control, mm. right? We could probably do this, and, and as is probably done in, for example, um, base jumping communities, right, which is yeah. certainly one of the unsafe activities. But um, statistically, right? I'm not saying that ethically or morally, morally, but just statistically in Alma Berti's scheme. Um, the, uh, uh, lots of sharing probably happens without a central authority doing it for these people, right? They share spontaneously online. Now, as that starts happening, you might see a maturation or an improvement yeah. in safety in these communities. And so there is a sweet spot. There is a sweet spot before which anarchism won't work, and there's a sweet spot beyond which more rules certainly don't work. You've used the phrase there, um, describing them as a community. Mm. I just, um, <clears throat> I wonder if there's a benefit in talking about agriculture and others uh, as communities rather than industries. It seems to me that there's an implication that community is a shared value of care and rather than yeah. industry being the production of an outcome. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. I mean, you could get easily corny with a word like community and, yeah. and start imposing it on, 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 on groups that are nothing like it. But yeah, but um, I think in, in farming they would use the phrase community the farming much community more than anybody of, else. Uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. and uh, it's probably appropriate. Mm. I asked you earlier about uh, safety, uh, anarchism, and employers. We've talked a little bit about individuals. I wanted to ask you about. Um, Regulators, safety regulators. You've talked about regulations already, but um, how receptive do you think safety regulators would be to the concepts that you're advocating in your book? So let's go back to um, so so two answers. One is the, uh, the, the 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 numbers that we started with, but the other one mm -hmm. is, is empirical rather than uh, my thinking about this yep. because we actually have data on this, which is uh, uh, probably more valuable. Um, but first of all, um, remember that 60% of all the compliance demands in this country are generated by companies themselves. Yeah. They're not the regulator. Yep. Right? The regulator is responsible for the minority of it. Um, the regulator doesn't care um, what size of mop uh, Woolworths is telling its employees to use to, to clean around the grapes area. Right? They don't want to know. They don't want to see. That. Right? That's not the point. They're not in that, in that sort of... Um, and, and, and that's just a ridiculous example. Yeah. But essentially, the regulation says you need a safety management system, you need exit signs. That's mm -hmm. it, right? Over to you. Um, sure. And so 
Um, so, so part of them probably says, hey, that's great. If this can help declutter part of that 60% that people have self-imposed, perhaps it gives them more time and space for a conversation with us for the 40% that we think matters, right? Mm. Or gives them a different way to engage with us in a conversation about, well, okay, you're telling us to have a safety management system, but you know what? We went through it and we chucked 90% of it. I think regulators would go, that's great. We got less to read, right? Yeah. And so we can, I mean, that's facetious, but sure. they probably go, that's great. What's in it now? What made you choose these things, mm. right? And they have very different conversations. So I, I know, I know that there is enthusiasm among, among, I mean, and not in all industries equally, but some in mm. construction and oil and gas uh, in, yeah. in, in, uh, in this country, this state, we've already uh, seen. The other thing is that we have uh, a regulator uh, in this state, um, um, so uh, wonderful uh, colleague, Bill Date, who, uh, who uh, is an inspector in the um, uh, chief inspector at the uh, Department of uh, Natural Resources and Mines. Um, uh, he, um, he's encouraging the organizations whom they inspect to, as he calls it, hunt for success, right? Mm-hmm. Tell us how you were achieving success. Don't tell us about these small failures and this, this, this you know, 0.11, point whatever percent of stuff that goes wrong. We mm-hmm. want to hear about how you get stuff done and how it goes well and what you learned from making it go well because that allows us to engage with others in a conversation. Now, there's always the question about what about the bad apples, right? Because there's always, every industry's got bad apples. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to enter into a moral or judgmental discussion about how you know what is a bad apple or not, because inspectors probably would come back and say, oh, but I know when I see one, right? And that's fair. These people are experienced. They probably do. Um, however, do we want to make 100% compliance regulation costing $250 billion for just a few bad apples, right, that really don't affect anybody else other than making their lives more miserable and making you as a regulator less relevant and less credible? I think a um, a more nuanced approach to that is probably mm. a good idea. You've, um, as I think I said before, that you've written a lot of books, <clears throat> um, and Safety Anarchist, Anarchist is your latest. Why do you write so much? Why do I write so much? Wow. Um, I have always had the sense of um, an intellectual impatience, a thirst, a, a curiosity that drives me to new things. A, um, uh, Eric Holnagel said that he, he writes a lot too. He said, you know, I write books because I want to explain these things to myself. And that's, that's an interesting way of, interesting way of, of looking at it. And, and, but I think it's, it's, and it may well apply to him, but I, I, if I were to claim that, that would be uh, false modesty. Um, because I do want to explain to other people as well. Yeah, right? and I, yeah, I do yeah. feel that urge. And yeah. so, it's not an internal um, diary. It's, it's I, something I that you publicly distribute. Very much, okay. very much. I mean, as, as is Eric's work. But, mm-hmm. but, so, um, but um, and, and I think the other reason for it is that I love writing. Mm-hmm. I, I love writing. It's, it's, it's one of the two or three things um, in, in life where I lose track of time. And, and to me, that's always an indicator of, of, of deep flow and enjoyment. Mm-hmm. And so um, I can be writing for four hours and, and, um, so, and, and not know that four hours passed. Yeah. Um, so this is where I get in trouble with kid pickups and stuff <laughs> like that, right? So, um, but the, um, um, uh, the, the other thing is, and I, I get, and that's really nice, there's a feedback loop in this where people tell me um, uh, every sentence is thought out. 
every sentence is is a is a is a, is a, is a poetic and a meaty delight and a substantive delight. Now that's not always true, but um, mm. but but when they when they go, you know because I do take care in crafting these things, and this is not my native language, mind you. Right? I'm making it all up, right? And perhaps that allows me a freedom that I wouldn't have had if it were my native language, right? Mm. Because I can lean on other languages that I speak and 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 and, and sort of bring in the way they parse the world. Uh, which is often very different from how Anglos do it. So. But I think we've got um, in safety education um, and maybe other areas of education as well, we're being encouraged more to write reflexive journals or reflective journals and, 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 and trying to make sense of concepts through writing and, and analysis and clarity of thought. So uh, certainly, I, I mean, I'm a blogger, so I'm trying, I write because I'm trying to work out what the hell is going on. Um, so it doesn't necessarily provide answers, but quite often the best lessons are from answering, uh, asking the right questions than providing the answers. So what questions do you ask in the Safety Anarchist book that you don't have an answer for, but you still think are important questions to ask? Hmm. One of the questions that I, I raise in the Safety Anarchist is, um, um, I think implicitly, um, are we aware that there are very different ways of collaborating and setting up systems of governance that have very little resemblance to what we've gotten used to in, in our own business? I mean, that's the implicit question throughout the whole mm -hmm. book. Um, I think a question toward the end is... Um, do you dare? Do you have the courage to do this? Right? And 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 uh, that's not an explicit question either, but it's certainly implicit in uh, in 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 the last chapter where I talk about others who have gone this path. Mm. For example, Woolworths and and, and other yeah. companies that that my lab has worked with. Um, and um, I think um, it's sort of cheekily the the question I often ask is, "Hey, you didn't know that, did you?" Um, you know about Kropotkin and the, the Judah watchmakers, mm. and you know how that can inspire us to think about innovation and collaboration. Hey, and oh by the way, you didn't know that um, the most innovative period in the West was actually not the Industrial Revolution. That was a very plodding, slow, just scaling up. You know, was innovative? No, I mean we already knew how, how to how to harness steam. Right, mm. I mean, that wasn't an innovation. Uh, a wheel on rails? Yeah, no, we have that on wood two thousand years ago. You know, and so it's <laughs> yeah. there's no no the real innovative period is in fact the Middle Ages, right? Or the Chinese for that matter, gunpowder, paper, you know, things like that. Um, uh, the compass, uh, the uh, the the idea of eyeglasses. You know, those are medieval inventions which are neither Protestant n <laughs> nor 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 um, uh, nor nineteenth century. Mm. I mean, they're they're right. They're all from small small towns in. Distributed anyway, so in that I think I ask many questions. People, oh, I didn't know that. Mm. And so, yeah. Right. The future of the OHS profession, Sydney. Does it have a future? Do you think it has the capacity to change, evolve? Where would you where would you see its most potential for change and mm. improvement? Mm. I think there is um, that when you talk about the future of the profession, that's potentially a problematic, um, problematic issue. When you talk about the future of the function mm. and of the values that it imports in an organization, of the reminders and of, I mean, not just the legislative requirements because those ultimately are made by men or humans and negotiable by them mm. as well, right? I mean, so you can, 
and, and those things have changed over the past 200 years and will keep changing likely as new risks emerge and others sort of die out. Um, and um, uh, But the, the value of a second opinion about whether something is safe or not, whether, whether and where the risks might sit in a particular activity, I think will never go away. And business leaders who run operations who think they can do without that voice um, do so at their peril and the peril of those who work for them. Mm. Um, so in that sense, I am very bullish and strident about the future of the function. Now, to suggest that we need institutions, that we need something that calls itself a profession, that says we have technical training and education that prepares you to become a member of this profession, I don't know the sustainability of that sort of credentialism, right? Mm. Um, other professions have done it before, and they've died out as well. And so um, it 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 imbues the the people who do this with perhaps a an exclusivity and an arrogance uh, or or it gets seen that way um, that that doesn't uh, necessarily support um, the type of future that that may be available for them. Mm. I think what uh, what Dave talks about is that um, certification of safety professionals is uh, is a bit of a boom uh, area at the moment both in Australia and, and around the world. Mm. Um, in, in, it's interpreted as giving a reassurance of quality to businesses who um, contract these people or employ professionals. Um, I think uh, I'm in my 50s, um, been in safety for over 20 years. I would struggle um, if I was just starting out in safety in a world that would require certification, would require these prerequisites, because there's a lot of that's a lot of baggage before you even start thinking creatively and functionally mm. about safety management. Mm. So I think I'm in a I'm in a position of luxury, yeah. um, even though I'm getting old. Um, and uh, you know I think that the future of the of the safety professionals may simply be that focus on safety, develop your attention, see where your strengths and your skills are and start communicating them and start applying them and start building on them with the support of institutions if they're around, but perhaps don't rely on that institutionalised thinking to to be innovative and maybe anarchistic. As soon as an institution starts developing a body of knowledge, right, to which I have contributed, um, but it sort of locks down the, mm. uh, the dogma, the, the orthodoxy, the standard. Um, and that is, um, I mean, guilds did that as well, right? Mm. And they were yeah. profoundly non-innovative uh, <laughs> institutions, right? This is how we bake bread. This is how we brew beer, right? And so, well, yeah. perhaps with brewing beer, that I don't know whether that's good or not, but uh, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Innovation there is interesting too, but mm. um, the um, uh, that probably doesn't serve the uh, the profession mm. well at all. But I think uh, back to your your observation, it shouldn't be just the uh, the uh, the budding safety professional or safety person or safety function that recognizes that they shouldn't rely on an institution to tell them what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's false, but that people who hire them shouldn't be doing so, mm. right? Um, and and start recognizing other values and having this voice. And I think that operational knowledge of the messy details of how things get done uh, is, uh, is, is key to that without becoming completely acculturated so that you see the world in exactly the same way that the operational people do. Because that's not very valuable. What you know? What addition can you then give? Mm. Um, 
and and then you know the, and the final reflection is is you see a huge professionalization in all kinds of fields you've seen it in nursing right and so lots of hospital trained nurses mm. versus uh, university trained nurses right university trained nurses um, uh, easily get get impugned by hospital trained nurses for not being able to possess uh, to or to show certain skills that mm. they certainly learned right like um, drawing blood with a normal syringe versus a vacutainer, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, they use the sort of the automated system because that's what they learned. Yeah. But nobody knows how to manual the honest manual labor anymore, right? And so this 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 professionalization and credentialism and sort of inflation of degrees associated and, and certification mm-hmm. uh, associated with professionalization is something that you see across the board. There, too, I don't think that these are necessarily unidirectional movements in society. Um, there may well be a future in which we come back from this and say, you know what, tertiary education for certain things is just a stupid idea. Mm. Right? I'm, not saying, I'm not judging that to be the case for anything right now, sure. but we may come to that realization and say, if we want ambulance drivers, do we really need, the, to, need them to sit in a university for three years, right? Is, is, is yeah. that going to make them better in responding to a call-out? Um, and so, and again, that's just an example, and it may, yep. may be true or not true, but, sure. and the same may be true for the safety profession. We've touched on a lot of <clears throat> issues uh, in your book, The Safety um, Anarchist. Uh, when is it due for release? How could people get more information about it? Uh, who's it being published by? Thank you. So it will be published by Rutledge in London, um, and the um, uh, release date for the book is end of October, early November, as far as I've been told. SydneyDecker.com slash books, S-I-D-N-E-Y, Decker, D-E-W-K-E-R. So your website already books. has information about upcoming Very good. Publication. indeed, yeah. Okay. Exactly. I'll have to check it out. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sydney about The Safety Anarchist. Uh, The book is available in various hard and soft formats at routledge.com, but I think the easiest way to find it may be just to search the internet for the title The Safety Anarchist. I have noticed that um, that it is available in an e-book format, which is probably the the cheapest and the easiest way to get the book, but um, it's always good to have a hard copy library if you've got the, the space. I'm uh, always uh, keen to hear feedback on the Safety at Work blog or the Safety at Work Talks podcast series. You can email me at jonesk at safetyatwork.biz with your comments or suggestions for other interviews. Uh, Thanks for spending some time with me and Sydney. My name's been Kevin Jones, and uh, thank you very much for listening.